and welcome to the Energetic Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa LaFera, an astrologer, tarot consultant, all-around creative from sunny San Diego, California. And this is the 76th episode of the podcast for the week of November 4th, 2019. So let's break it down a bit. Here's what to expect. The goal is to help guide and prepare you for the utmost awareness of the energy in the moment. For if you use the energy consciously, it is a better chance of working for you. I'll kick off the show with a weekly astro report, along with a few tarot polls in our Animal Ambassador of the Week. Then a guest will join me in conversation around a chosen topic, and this week I'm so happy to welcome Washington-based astrologer, author, publisher, and editor, Dr. Jen Zart, who's going to join me in a conversation on astrology and academia. So before we get started here, please remember, as always, take what resonates and leave the rest, because only you know you best. So thank you so much for joining me here today, and if you'd like to show appreciation for my work and get early Sunday access for as little as $1 per month, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com backslash energeticprinciples. If you'd like to make a one-time donation to support this podcast, you can do that as well. You can do that through Mel's tip jar at energeticprinciples.com. So let's get down this week's astro report. Our lunar lady starts out the week waxing off of a first quarter moon in Aquarius and where she continues to grow in light throughout the week. She glides through these futuristic airs until moving into the sensitive waters of Pisces on Tuesday around midday. She then floats through this dreamy and connective space throughout the middle of the week until she enters into the cardinal fires of Aries on Friday. So then she's going to bring that blaze for the majority of the weekend until she settles into the stable earth of Taurus midday on Sunday. So just a quick heads up, all time approximations are for North America. So if you live in Europe, at about eight hours. And if you are in Australia or the East, at about 17 hours or, you know, basically the following day. And keep in mind that timing isn't always precise as astrological transits, otherwise known as the connections that planets make to one another, have varied emphasis as they apply and separate. So it's quite possible to feel the energy sooner or later than the exact moment of contact. Well, my friends, we have yet another interesting week before us here. Uh, We have the Scorpio Sun, which is going to sextile Saturn and trine Neptune while Saturn and Neptune experience their last sextile, which has been a coloration of 2019. We also have Mercury retrograding back to sextile Pluto and also is on approach to make a conjunction with the Sun. And of course, and last but certainly not least, we have Mars and Libra who's going to square Pluto in Capricorn, which is going to bring some intensity this week. Uh, So let us waste no time and dive right in. On Monday, we start out the week with the moon in Aquarius, and she will have a square to the sun, which is our first quarter moon, super early in the morning, which will happen for, you know, most people sleeping here in North America. But then we'll go on to trine Mars later in the evening. And so the bottom line for Monday is, is that we are soaring through the Aquarius winds as we continue to push off the first quarter moon cycle and move all day towards a trine to Mars. 
And so ideas and possibilities for the future float through the air and motivate our direction forward, giving this day an intellectual and communicative quality. The need for interaction with others is likely to take place, especially through technological channels. Now, in the evening, we are feeling into the day's revised perspectives, because this is moon in Aquarius here, uh, which are helping to push and form uh, a new framework uh, that is really going to reflect the upcoming changes that we are about to embark upon. So, you know, look for that new perspective on Monday. Now, on Tuesday, the moon will be in Aquarius, but she'll move to Pisces around uh, mid-late afternoon here in North America. Uh, And along the way, she'll sextile Jupiter, square Mercury, and then sextile Uranus. But also of note on Tuesday is we have Mars squaring Pluto. And Mars, you know, Mars in is our focused action it's how we direct our motivation towards something it's it's the warrior that's calling upon us to uh, assert ourselves in some way uh in squares you know these are eventful transits where there's action coming to the forefront and there could be friction or challenge at play but what are we challenged towards? And that is Pluto. And Pluto is that transformer type of energy uh, where it's a purification process and it's an instinctual one. And it may ask us uh, to examine certain, uh, you know, our drives and, and control of our lives. So, you know, when Mars and Pluto meet in the skies, you can bet it's going to get a little intense at the party. Because warrior energy meeting with the transforming force of Pluto always indicates that, you know, whatever we move towards or put force behind will create changing conditions. So when we will, uh, you know, when when will and power, <laughs> you know, think about willpower, when will and power meet in challenge, it can, you know, either create power struggles or it can empower us to evolve. And quite possibly, it could be a flavor of both. Now, with Mars currently in Libra, which is the daytime sign of his detriment, there can be tension and strife between each other and where ideas and future trajectories may clash. So consider this a bit of a hairy time in the relating department. Yet within whatever you encounter, there is ultimately an activating force that has the agenda of purification behind it. So more often than not, it takes bravery to step up and call a truce or be able to compromise with another person. So if you do find yourself in that position, diplomacy will most likely be the best way to get your way, or at least some of your way, and which is better to have, half or nothing. So just some food for thought there. Now, this energy can also bring clarity to the surface uh, and the need to act on our truth, which may create changing conditions as well. Yet by doing so, we initiate new possibilities in our lives. And although that may, you know, be scary or may ask us to embark upon somewhere we've never been before, it will be worthwhile in the long run to make whatever adjustment is needed to bring you further into harmony and balance. So the bottom line for Tuesday is, is that here we have a full day caught between Mercury and Uranus's light, carrying forth yesterday's innovative and problem-solving agenda. So it may feel like a two-part day as Luna changes from a detached and intellectual point of view to one that is more sensitive and impressionable. Um, And, you know, our ways of looking at the world may be challenged today as we are asked to view our existing framework from a different angle. So give yourself time and space where you can 
and sink into a slower pace in the evening, as it may be beneficial to slow down and give your intuitive impressions the quiet to come forth. Now, on Wednesday, we have the moon in Pisces, and she'll square Venus, trine the sun, sextile Saturn, and then uh, conjoin Neptune. And so the bottom line for Wednesday is, is that it's possible to wake up in a bit of a funk as we start the day off under the, you know, the energy of Luna square to Venus, which can make us a little moody. Yet we move towards revelation throughout the day as the soul speaks through emotional and intuitive stimulus, you know, especially with that moon in Pisces trining a Scorpio sun. So particularly in the evening, we're getting a lunar glimpse into Friday's Sun-Saturn-Neptune action, which I'm going to talk about here shortly. So, you know, be receptive on Wednesday and listen to what is trying to come through. It could be just what the soul needs to heal and surrender to what is falling away, while also imagining what the heart wants to build moving forward. So go easy on yourself on Wednesday, you know, because we are all moving through a transitional space, and it may feel like we are walking in a bit of a dream world, which can sometimes also be overwhelming at times. Now, on Thursday, we have the moon still in Pisces. She'll make a sextile to Pluto, a trine to Mercury, and a square to Jupiter. And so the bottom line for Thursday is, is that today we have the intellect, you know, that trine with Mercury, meeting the emotional self as the moon in Pisces uh, basically flows into the perceptions of what Mercury has to share, uh, while also forming a helpful alliance with uh, the transformational energy of Pluto. And so the mind is on change as Luna lights up the upcoming transit between these two. And it's quite possible that shifts in agenda may be communicated on a day like today. So don't, you know, if you hear something or you know, <laughs> things are changing, uh, that can definitely happen on Thursday. Uh, and especially with Luna's square to Jupiter, uh, which is furthering this mission, we are essentially emotionally pushed to accept the future story. So let it go and let it flow as it's in our best interest to embody the spirit of adventure and the new experiences that await us through these shifts. So, you know, put on your adventure cap on Thursday. Now, on Friday, the moon is now in Aries, and we'll trine Venus later in the evening. Uh, And also of note, we have the sun making that sextile to Saturn, the trine to Neptune, and then Saturn and Neptune are in a sextile that is perfecting that day, too. Uh, So there's a a buildup of energy that is culminating on Friday under a, uh, a very dynamic Aries moon here. So let us talk about this Sun-Saturn-Neptune connection, because, you know, the Sun, that's our life force, that's our vitality. Uh, It's when we become aware of something consciously, and essentially we turn a page. Uh, And so here we have this uh, opportunity of a sextile that is opening a door to Saturn. And Saturn, you know, is all about tightening up the ship, getting some structure, taking responsibility, stepping into your authority, looking at the long term, and organizing a foundation of some sort. Yet, we also have this awareness in a trine that is flowing with Neptune. And Neptune is kind of a bit of an antithesis to the Saturn energy, which Neptune diffuses and dissolves, uh, and there could be loss here. Um, but there's also spiritual inspiration and some and more of a dreamy quality to it. And of course, Saturn and 
Neptune are making their own sextile, which is this is going to be the third and final pass, which is really marking the end of the Jupiter-Saturn-Neptune configuration that has been coloring all of 2019. So there's kind of a bigger story at play here. So what does that mean? What does this mean? Well, this week brings to us an awareness-inducing configuration that is wrapping up a cosmic dance that has been taking place all year long. Now, as many of you know, both Jupiter and Saturn have been going back and forth in conversation with the the behind-the-veil energies of Neptune and Pisces throughout 2019. And now we have arrived at the last meeting of these slower-moving bodies as Saturn makes its final sextile to Neptune. And luckily for us, it's right at the time that the Sun comes along to also support this flow. So, you know, this is a rarity of configuration where, we, you know, something wraps up, but then we have that solar uh, light that is you know, helping guide us through this. And so soul and intuition will be speaking this week as the solar light of the sun shines its consciousness on this spiritually inclined visions that Neptune is permeating into our beings. Now, and it may feel like we are arriving at a point in our personal karmic path that is asking us to surrender to the soul's inspiration that is seeking to become architected in the real world. And it's not often we have the cosmic support to make our dreams tangible, yet a wave of a wand will not magically make it happen. Instead, we must focus our passions and be willing to dare with our hearts to build the life we imagine. And yes, work will be involved. Quite possibly a lot of it, yet that is what the coming months reinforce, for soon enough we will have a Capricorn stellium in the skies that will be ready to TCB. So remember that uh, when water meets earth, we get mud, which means we can build form. Yet it takes the right balance uh, as too much water can dissipate the structure, while not enough of it will keep it from, you know, that solid cohesion that it's trying to get. So find the right balance for you between dreams and reality. For if you find uh, or or feel a steady signal of passion and are ready to work towards that vision, anything, even miracles, are possible. So the bottom line for Friday is, is that there is a rush of energy on Friday as we are enlivened by that waxing Aries moon, and it may feel like we are awakening from the dream state of the few days prior. We also feel the flames of desire licking our faces as the fiery and enthusiastic Aries moon flows with the flair for life that Venus uh, brings now that she's in Sagittarius. So a shift has taken place, and we are now ready to embrace the new and attract in the slice of life we are looking for. Let what attracts you lift you up at this time, while finding the courage to move towards the bold inspirations of the self. Now, on Saturday, the moon is still in Aries, uh, and she will square Saturn and square Pluto, which is uh, never a, a fun day in the park, <laughs> uh, but a necessary one. But we'll also have Mercury, who is retrograding back to make a sextile with Pluto here. So... Mercury, you know, this is how we take in information, how we are intellectually chewing over something, communicating something, news that comes in, how we're perceiving. And, you know, sextiles, as we stated earlier, open the door. They welcome the energy to flow, but there has to be, uh, you know, (laughs) has to have some um, independent initiative behind it in order to do so. Uh, and of course, where are we flowing? Well, that's to Pluto. We've already discussed uh, with Mars square Pluto earlier in the week that there is change at hand and there's purification uh, that is taking place. 
And so I consider this a nice follow-up transit to the Mars-Pluto square earlier in the week. And perhaps we may actually be feeling uh, that rear up once more because the moon in Aries is forming a challenging T-square with that exact configuration. Yet a contemplated Mercury retrograde can help us take in and understand these forces as Mercury is currently looking to Mars in the sky while in Scorpio. Yet this is the high side of things, for if we don't give Mercury the time to reconsider or reevaluate, it can be easier to emotionally react in our conversations or find ways to control with our words. So just remember that there is the opportunity to evolve and have deep healing conversations, uh, internally or externally, that may challenge us. Or there is the chance that we find it all too easy to go to the dark side and engage with intellectual bite or intended secrecy around a matter. And I know my listeners, though, and I trust that you'll lean to the high side of things because awareness is always key. So the bottom line for Saturday here is that we have another day in the impatient and born-ready fires of Aries, yet there is much more tension to this day than the day before. And so lunar triggers challenge from Saturn and Pluto, and we may be feeling limited in some way. Or perhaps we are very clear of our new boundaries and are ready to push the situation into greater integrity. And with Mercury connecting with Pluto, we have the opportunity to communicate or integrate something profound today. And luckily, we will feel bold enough to do so, or at least I hope so. But, you know, bold can go either way here, so keep that in mind. Um, Because little Aries can be hot on that handle, fly off that handle. So if, you know, if your attitude around a situation in your life is in need of change, this is actually a fantastic day to instigate a perception shift. So look at Saturday as a time, you know, no matter what you're faced with, that you can hopefully, uh, you know, instigate something new in your life that can shift the way that you are looking at things or going about things. Now, on Sunday, the moon is still in Aries, but she will move to Taurus uh, later in the afternoon. Along the way, she'll make an opposition to Mars, a trine to Jupiter, and then a conjunction to Uranus late in the evening. But also of note, I do want to give a shout out to Mercury, who is retrograding back to conjunct the sun. Um, now, we've already talked about Mercury being the perception and, you know, the, the intellect uh, in the sun lighting things up and turning a page. Um, and, you know, conjunctions, these are new cycles that are fusing together. And this is part of Mercury's retrograde cycle where it comes back to meet the sun in what is known as the inferior conjunction, uh, where the two seed together. Now, this is going to technically happen at 7.22 a.m. Pacific time, uh, Monday morning. But, you know, that's early enough to where I think that it needs to be included in this week's uh, podcast. Otherwise, you might miss it by the time it happens next week. So, um, and, you know, I really think this is definitely a follow-up to the sun's action with Saturn and Neptune plus Mars, you know, the Mars-Pluto square. And so there's a lot of activity that actually comes before the Mercury meets the sun in Scorpio. So I think those that energy is going to help, you know, certain developments seed in within the, this transit. Because, you know, this is perfect celestial timing uh, after a, quite an impactful week in the skies. And so energy is high as we are waxing towards next Tuesday's full moon in Taurus because we have a full moon around the corner. And here Mercury comes around in its inferior conjunction to seed with the solar purpose of the sun. Now, as these two are fusing in the fixed underworld waters of Scorpio, right after the sun made its flowing connections with Neptune and Saturn, like I just said, 
you can bet that there will be psychic messages floating by for integration. Um, So, you know, whatever is lurking below the surface or was previously out of conscious view or maybe was even kept secret in some way, you know, these things will begin to rise up to see the light of day and why it will be a good rule of thumb to, you know, to listen to spirit at this time. You know, keep uh, keep yourself receptive um, to what is going on. Because essentially messages of the soul, I think, are going to be guided to us at this time. And whatever is seeding into our perception may be of a very personal and deeply rooted emotional nature. You know, because we're talking about Scorpio, things, still waters running deep. So something is being revealed here. So be sure to listen to your feelings um, and, or in your intuitions and just that, that sense, sense that we have, that sixth sense, <laughs> especially late Sunday and early Monday, as they're, you know, they are rich in direction at this time with this Mercury Sun Kazemi. So the bottom line for Sunday is, is I hear we have a two-part day as we spend the first half of the day energized by that waxing Aries moon. Yet we, you know, we're going to move to settle down into the grounded earth of Taurus later in the afternoon. Yeah, you know, it may not feel as stable as we'd like because Luna fuses with disruptive Uranus along the way. However, it may be just the disruption we are looking for as it wakes our perceptions up and helps to stimulate the Sun-Mercury-Kazemi conjunction that is seeding in the early part of Monday morning. And so a full moon will soon be on the horizon, and we are culminating to a new sense of peace. Yet first, we may have to shake some things up. And so that's what we will be feeling on Sunday. Now, to wrap it all up here, you know, this week we come to new understandings about where our stories are shifting, and while also making moves that instigate change and pivots in our lives. We are ready to strengthen and put a framework around our most viable dreams, while also surrendering what has run its course and is now negatively affecting our lives on an emotional level. So embrace a new perception of what life can look like, and then set your sights on the revised lines that are now being drawn. Now, let's take a look at the cards because they always add a little something-something here. And so this week, I drew the Page of Wands as the focus and the Ten of Swords as the grounding. Now, with the Page of Wands as the focus, there is a fresh burst of youthful energy at play this week uh, that desires to transform the old paradigm via enthusiasm and newfound inspiration. That speaks to me of that Aries moon, I think. Uh, And so there is a creative force that is birthing into being as the fuel of the soul is alight and the blaze is poised to give us courage and willpower to initiate in the outer world. And so there's passion and vitality in the air this week. And as Mars meets Pluto in a square, you can bet there will be a daring and potentially all-consuming energy at play. So embrace the passionate and spontaneous quality of the page, but be sure to look before you leap. Now, with the Ten of Swords as the grounding, I see the page as, you know, helping us to renew ourselves and turn around the ruin and despair that can be associated with the Ten. And, you know, we are feeling the fresh fires of the page that are at play because we have, you know, had it with worn out ways of viewing our lives and the situations we are up against. And so rather than stew in old stories or outdated modes of thinking— or even a martyr relationship uh, where we feel helpless to the world. It, you know, it's time to let that go and get ready to renew ourselves through mental surrender so we can turn that page. 
you know, pun intended, I suppose, (laughs) the page of wands is our focus. So whatever feels like it has reached rock bottom in your life is now, you know, this is what is in need of a Plutonian cleanse for it's time to rise above in our viewpoints as a new dawn awaits. Now, last but certainly not least, this show is brought to you by this week's animal ambassador, the frog. Our dear amphibious friend is here to further Pluto's message this week by asking that we clear out the clutter from our lives. It's time to embrace purification in all areas of our day-to-day existence, whether it's clearing out the mental clutter, the emotional clutter, or the physical clutter. And potentially all of those will apply, you know, because it is really ready, you know, we are ready to embark upon a fresh slate. So if you've wanted to start that juice cleanse, now's the time. You have a closet that is bursting at the seams. Get in there. An old emotional pattern that keeps tripping you up. You know, step back and see it for what it really is and let it go. Because the frog can help us guide uh, between, you know, that land and that water this week, which is going to provide rich spiritual experiences when we are willing to purge and let go. So get hopping and take advantage. All right, so announcement time. Well, I will give one last little shout out to uh, our SDAS talk here in San Diego. If you're in San Diego, we're going to be hosting Adam Gainsburg uh, this Friday on November 8th. It will happen, uh, lecture will start at 7 p.m. at the Joyce Beer Center uh, over in the hub where the Trader Joe's is, if you're familiar with that area. And he'll be speaking on all conjunctions are not created equal, where he'll be looking at conjunctions, but also taking into uh, reference declination and other types of things we might want to look at to see how that's playing out. So that's going to be a fabulous uh, uh, lecture, I'm sure. And of course, you know, one way you can support this podcast is by uh, connecting with me on Patreon. So I do have an option, which is called Astro Storytime, which for $6 a month, you get a monthly one hour long episode where I am highlighting different charts and different ways of looking at astrology. And so I'm working on a new episode and I don't have, you know, I don't have quite the details yet, but I know it's going to be a good one. So consider signing up for that as uh, the following week it will be airing. And of course, I am still collecting people, you know, names for my upcoming course offerings that I'm working on. And so if you would like to be on the priority notification list for that and to also receive my Astro Basics cheat sheet, you can do so on my website at energeticprinciples.com backslash learn. Uh, And of course, once again, to support on Patreon, uh, you can get there by going to patreon.com backslash energeticprinciples. Okay, now let's meet our guest. All right, I am so happy to welcome this week's special guest. I have Dr. Jen Zart here with me today. Thank you for joining me, Jen. Hi. Um, And uh, I have not met Jen in person before, but I have seen her through the miracle of the interwebs. Um, And she's always sharing some fantastic stuff. And I just like, uh, you've got a good sense of humor, it seems, (laughs) Uh, which is always appreciated. So uh, for the listeners that have not heard of you before, will you uh, give us a little background on yourself? Sure. I am always traveling. A lot of my chart has placements in the ninth house. So I've been traveling since I was born, basically. Lived in 13 places before I was 20. 
Um, and now I call Seattle or Cascadia my home, but I'm frequently traveling from here to other places. And I've been doing astrology since I was 15. Mm. So, all right. I'm well, 37. So there's that benchmark. <laughs> yes. That's a, uh, oh, you were about at that Saturn square. <laughs> um, Saturn was conjoining my natal moon when I began learning astrology. Oh, interesting. Well, let's talk about that because uh, as the listeners know, everybody that I've been bringing on, even if they're not astrologers, sometimes I'll be like, well, what got you interested in this? And so I just love everyone's story. So Jen, what is yours? My story starts like this. Um, Actually, it's funny. Adam Ellenbos interviewed me recently uh, last year about how I got started with this and it all started with getting grounded. Um. So not to go into too much detail about why I got grounded, I turned out to be uh, only allowed to go to Powell's books. And my German teacher from high school, who happened to be an astrologer, asked me my birth time and place and date and printed out this enigmatic map. And he said, go to Powell's to this section and get these books. And he wrote a little list of books down. And I'm like, mom, can I go to the bookstore and get these books? And she's like, yeah. So she took me to the bookstore and I got the books. And he's like, if you have any questions, just ask me after class. So while I was waiting for her to pick me up, I would ask him questions about astrology. And we began this one-on-one mentorship that lasted 15 years. Oh, wow. (laughs) How, uh, you know, we don't normally hear uh, anybody say something good came out of someone being grounded. (laughs) Yeah, actually, this is the only amazing thing that happened uh, because it was like, you know, here I am thinking like, oh man, I can't see my friends for a long time. This is going to be awful. And then I got completely wrapped up in astrology because the first things I started reading explained why I was grounded and and when it would end. And then it did end when it said it would. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Everybody needs to do this. And then here's the thing. He goes, well, I've designed the curriculum for Kepler College in Seattle. And this is actually something you can't study when you go to college. And I was like in high school going like, why can't I study this amazing thing in school? And he goes, it's not academic enough. Like the entire community has gotten together to create Kepler College so that we can have a place for our studies. Um, So maybe, maybe you can go there, you know, but at that point it hadn't opened yet. And I was on track to need to start college before it was going to be open for enrollment. So I ended up going to school at NYU in Gallatin um, and not Kepler. But I always held out as hope that maybe one day I'll get a master's degree in astrology from Kepler College. And by the time I finished my higher education, um, their master's program had stopped being offered. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, because they did Wales instead. How interesting. That's uh, Well, there's a couple interesting things about that story um, that are going to lead into the topic that Jen is going to talk about here today, and that is the uh, astrology and academia together and how <laughs> you know there's some tension related there. But it's so interesting that you uh, were uh, you know, afforded the opportunity to get into astrology around the time that you were making these uh, you know, bigger life choices for yourself to go, you know, as we, as a lot of us do to, you know, pursue a path of education past, you know, high school. Um, But it raised this question for you of like, wait, hold on. I just found this really legitimate thing that clearly works. I just timed my whole, you know, like (laughs) this is working. But why isn't this either taken seriously or uh, given the level of um, maybe respect uh, (laughs) that you saw it there? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, even going into choosing a school, 
I had in the back of my mind, how can I study astrology in college? Um, and my solution was to go to a school of interdisciplinary study. Hmm. So I thought, you know, if, the, if you can design your own major and create independent studies, I'll be able to get something together enough to kind of approximate what it could be like. And yeah, we can go into what actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> So you, yes. You, so you're like, wait, okay. Well, I see, I see the framework here, but I also want the freedom in order to be able to, you know, cultivate the way I would like to learn. And so, yeah. what what happened? I mean, <laughs> where did you go so from here? This was coming at the advising of that same astrology mentor. His name's Gary Lorenzen. He's amazing. He lives in Portland, Oregon, um, and he had gone to Evergreen State College in. Washington State when he was an undergrad. He was in their first graduating class along with um, the Simpsons creator and the guy, the actor who played Kramer in Steinfeld. So I thought that was kind of cool that like there's this creative pocket of coming out of Washington at that moment. Um, But he goes, you know, if you go to an interdisciplinary program, you'll be able to kind of cobble together something, right? So I'm there at NYU. We're at the Bopes Library at the top floor with the orientation meeting and they just got finished saying, you can study anything you want at Gallatin. And so I raise my hand and I'm like, what about astrology? And they go, oh, well, that's not academic enough. And I'm like, wait a minute. So my parents have invested all this money for me to be here in New York City at a place where you literally just spent two hours telling us we can do anything we want. And I say that and you say no. So I found this um, professor of science, this historian of science named Scott McPartland. And I said, okay, I want to study the decline of astrology's legitimacy from Ptolemy to Kepler. And he goes, that's a great independent study. I'll, I'll do it with you. So we made up this whole plan. And my roommate thought I was crazy. I had 90 books checked out of the library. Literally, I counted them. And I was writing about, you know, when astrology, like the sort of the history of astrology up until the Enlightenment, right? Mm -hmm. Like how on earth is it possible for someone at the administration to tell me this isn't academic enough when it's a valid area of human inquiry? It's it's culture, you know, like we have 90 books that we can check out about it. Why can't I study this, right? Um, And so that became, you know, from freshman year, he was just like, I've never seen a freshman just start school and do an independent study like this. But I was pretty hell-bent on like (laughs) proving to them that their answer of no was the wrong answer. Mm. Yeah. Well, and it's just... And we got to ask why that, why that is. And I'm sure that's what the path that you ended up going down <laughs> as you wrote this yeah. whole thing of like, how did we get to, um, you know, because astrology at, at one point in time, as far as I understand, it was quite respected uh, with its, you know, what it was able to give to us as humans, as an understanding. And so, I mean, what happened there? How did it fall from its legitimate place? Um, and why, you know, and is that connected with, people's fear of the unknown in some way, uh, now that we are enlightened. <laughs> I mean, what happened? You see resurgence of astrology every time there's general uncertainty in society, but it's always been a contested art because it's powerful. So you'll see um, moments where you know it was held in a courtly regard and you didn't really want the common people to have the command of it. So you have kind of a folk astrology on the one hand and then this higher astrology on the other. Um, and then... If you ask a historian of science, they'll say, well, astrology is kind of like, you know, proto-astronomy, but then we figured out astronomy can measure stuff so we can drop the, the mystical part of it, right? And then you, if you ask a historian of religion, they'll go, 
yeah, you know, we believed some cosmologies, but now we have a different cosmology. So that is no longer a thing. Yeah. And it basically, window. like the science question or the religion question are vying for attention in how astrology fell out of favor with the rise of the scientific method, right? So mm-hmm. we get this method of human inquiry that relies a lot on causal relationships. And so we can't actually measure causal relationships with a philosophy that is undergirded by as above, so below. So already there we have a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And then when my research, what I found is, you know, anytime there's a history of ideas, uh, you always want to actually ask, where's the money? Where's the material transmission coming from? And in the history of astrology during the Enlightenment period and prior to that, the century before that, what you actually have is, and this was funny that it came out this way, I was giving a talk about the history of astrology at a planetarium in Alaska last Mm -hmm. year. And someone in the audience kind of summed up what I was telling them. So I'm going to give you the the tweet version of what they summed (laughs) up. But basically there was a fake news campaign. So here in the Reformation, you have a religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics. And in order to kind of dominate the news cycle, they made up a fake birthday for Martin Luther in Germany. And it was off by a year, but they were trying to somehow show that he was demonic, right? So they came Mm -hmm. up with fake astrology to explain why he was acting the way he was acting. And Abby Warburg, a German art historian from the early 20th century, wrote a lot about this. And... What you end up having here is um, with the rise of movable type and people being able to print off broad streets, you have people making up astrology to get political advantage over their religious opponents. And so what I like to always bring it down to is like, yeah, yeah, the science question's interesting and the religious question's interesting, but we have a material problem. We actually have the publishing problem. People are publishing misinformation about astrology and that creates a disinformation campaign strong enough for the common person to stop understanding astrology, to stop wanting to understand it. Oh, this prediction didn't come true. Well, it wasn't actually based on anything. It was Dang. propaganda. And so that, it was around, you know, it was in the mid-1600s and then forward with the entrenchment of the scientific method, you get this buildup of this is no longer a valid area of inquiry because it doesn't work, but it's not working because people are literally making it up. And so, yeah, of course, it's not going to work if you're faking it. But if you get the rules and you understand the ancient techniques, then it will work, right? So basically, you know, and you can't say that astrology disappeared. Um, What what the better term would be, it went underground, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this kind of subterranean, perhaps oral transmission, private practice, some folk astrology continuing. You've got farmer's almanacs and things of that nature. Um, As we know, with the rise of Project Hindsight in the 90s, there was definitely a loss of transmission of mm-hmm. older material. Um, in the early 20th century in Germany, which is what I ended up specializing in, they did have an awareness of the Greeks uh, because there was a transmission line that continued in that culture that wasn't brought over to the English culture. Mm. But anyway, so I mean, it's a very storied history, way more than we can cover in an hour <laughs> here. But I would like to just foreground, you know, like bring it back to the, the awareness of like publishing itself is one of the battle lines that's not paid attention to enough because you know, the changes in the history of science and the changes in the history of religion rely upon some form of transmission. What is that form? It's yeah. the printed word. Yeah. And, it's and who's the behind it? Technology of the printed word. 
Well, and like you were saying, you know, the agenda behind it and how, you know, we're seeing that here today, obviously, with, uh, you know, the, the fake news and everything that's coming out yeah. uh, with our, our politics. And I mean, this is nothing new, as we well see. And now we're tracing it back to uh, the history of astrology as well um, and how, you know, people who have power and money uh, are going to divert the course of history to suit their own agenda, no matter what that looks like, even if it's, you know, publishing fake astrology material in order to get there. Um, And well, it's just so fascinating to me. Well, not only that to like suit the agenda, but then taking on the scientific, um, uh, you know, the scientific view of the world once we got to that that place in history. And like you said, it went underground. I saw, uh, uh, and one of the reasons I actually, I was like, oh, I need to reach out to Jen was because uh, Christopher Renstrom spoke for us, our group, uh, not too long ago on uh, trash astrology, the, the lecture it. he did. Yes. And he uh, he's like, I always dedicate a lecture. And so he dedicated the lecture to you. Oh. Um, yes, he did. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, oh, yeah. you know. And so they brought this topic further to the forefront here. Um, so yeah. we can see why. Okay. So we're, we're seeing the agenda behind it. Um, and how that gets mixed views uh, with so the publisher question comes back in to the 20th century because here in the 19th yeah. century you have Alan Leo and um, some other figures bringing astrology back from the theosophical standpoint. And the one thing that made theosophical interventions in occultism so powerful was their dominance of the publishing arena. Mm. What they published is questionable, but the fact that they published is very historically important. Right, so for however you feel about Blavatsky and 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 Bezant and anything that they actually wrote is very separate from needing to acknowledge the importance of how they waged their information campaigns because they gave a platform for a marketplace and for topics to be discussed, and um, they figured out that when you publish monthly horoscope columns, which as Nick Campion has shown, you know the weeklies or this kind of idea of the the newspaper column came up in 1932 in Britain, so it's not that old, right? But you you can sell a lot of things when you tell people about themselves, right? Yeah. And so that became this capitalist inter- intervention into the publishing arena of astrology, and that is why also that in academics they say, well, this isn't a valid field of inquiry because it doesn't work. It's not real. Look at these, you know, trash horoscopes in the column, in the newspaper or online. Like, why would you, that's not academic. Why would you study that? Right. You can maybe look at it from an anthropological lens, but it's not a valid thing to be like, but what does it mean when Mercury is trining my natal Mercury? You know what I mean? So it's Mm -hmm. like, that becomes kind of irrelevant to the concerns of the academy, if that makes sense. Oh, and well, it's so interesting because I mean, there's plenty of other topics that are studied within academia that are not, you know, literal or like, you know, when you're thinking about things like philosophy and let's look at these parts. Like, there are no finite points that come yeah. to these studies, and so why does it have to be like that with astrology? Right. And, and well, and also, I mean, if you think about like you were saying, the difference in uh, astrological approaches, you know, back in the day when it was still considered legitimate, like they were keeping it from, you know, the the lesser or the lower folk because it was considered that powerful and they only needed that power, I'm assuming, to be able to direct kingdoms and to know their, their leaders are capable of winning a war, you know, whatever that looks like. But there still seemed to be some type of materialistic end to the need where, you know, here in the 20th century, we see the shift, especially to more, you know, spiritually based astrology or psych- psychological astrology. And so it's also an interesting 
separation of uh, agenda for astrology in, in itself that seemed to come about with the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'll um, look into some of Nick Campion's work on the history of astrology. There's a root in sociology. The field of sociology is rooted in someone who is interested in astrology. So this mm-hmm. idea of categorizing groups of people. And even the history of psychology, it was also considered a soft science when it, when it first started coming out. And it's done a lot to legitimize itself. And you'll see things like the Myers-Briggs test is actually like, you know, mock astrology. It's, it's hidden. It's at the root of it, but they don't want to openly claim like, oh, well, we have, you know, a basis in the stars. But you see a lot of ways in which in order to work around the mystical components that are ascribed to astrology, academics will come up with these fields like psychology or sociology that approximate what mm. astrology can do without actually having the power of what astrology can actually do. And it's like, you guys are working really hard yeah. for something that actually can be quite easy. So, the and, and you see it in Germany. So just suffice to say, when I was at Gallatin, I did include astrology in most of the classes I took there and went on to get my PhD at Berkeley with a PhD thesis about astrology and German culture which is why I keep drawing on the German examples. But Mm -hmm. in the early 20th century in Germany, there was an entire society of astrologers, an astrological community where you had to have a PhD to be in it. And they were trying to integrate astrology back into the university system at that time. But the rise of national socialism nipped that in the bud. So that effort did not go anywhere. Um, but they wanted to turn it into a science that could be legitimized. And the word science in Germany is very contested because it means field of knowledge, Wissenschaft. It's not actually sort of like what we think of as like a hard science. When we say science in English, it sounds like, oh, we're talking about, you know, hypothesis and scientific method. And in German, it's more of a field of inquiry, right? So I could be, I actually would be referred to as a Literaturwissenschaftler, which is a literary scientist. Um, We use the word academic for that because that's how we say field of knowledge. So there was a lot of effort to legitimize astrology in the sphere of like what's accepted knowledge because they were arguing this is the whole entire field of human culture that existed in our past. Why are we negating that just because people happen to publish random stuff in news periodicals now, you know? Yeah. Well, and why do you think that's so strong? Like what, what, why are we, you know, not we, obviously we aren't, we're, we're very much converted. Um, but, but why is there such a push to like, you know, especially from the level of academia, not to raise the bar there or not to give it that legitimacy. I think part of it has to do with peer review and people not knowing what they're prejudging. Mm. So there's been such a dearth of education about astrology in the last 300 years that it's very difficult for people who have been told that it's BS to actually give it any credence. Um, And it takes a lot to have a skeptic overcome their skepticism with it. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's just a matter of habit, honestly. And the process of peer review over time has led to this prejudice being built in. Um, I see memes recently saying to the effect of, don't say astrology doesn't work, just say, I don't understand it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's honestly, that's why it's standpoint is because I'm like, okay, I I get it. Because at one time I was a skeptic myself. Like uh, that's, I just Capricorn moon, Scorpio rising. I was (laughs) naturally skeptic. Uh, And then I turned into a skeptic mystic. That's, I turned my name towards that. But why, you know, 
to me, skepticism, at least learning from my own example, was just a lack of knowledge because you're only skeptical until you, you know, actually put the scientific method to it. Because when you test and you try over and over and over, that is to me about as scientific as it gets. So at what point, you know, what point do we be like, okay, well, actually I have studied this. I do have all these corresponding, you know, correlations that are panning out. So what more proof do you need? I mean- what other field spent 730 years writing one book about the Zodiac? <laughs> this was the Enuma Anu Enlil in Mesopotamia. They were observing and recording correspondences between what they saw the planets doing and what was happening in the kingdom, which is how our Zodiac in the modern West got created. It's the foundation of a lot of how Western astrology developed. 700 years of empirical observation and they want to say, oh, that's not academic. It's like, well, actually, it's way more academic than most of what you call academia. History as a field didn't exist before the 19th century. A lot of these things that we have that are like codified as disciplines that are gatekeeping knowledge got created in this 19th century model of what a university was supposed to be. And that was created in Europe, right? And so this goes to a deeper question of why do we care whether astrology is part of a university system? The university system itself has a history and it has a history of dominating knowledge in a certain format. And, and so to think that that's the only way we can know and that's the only arbiter of what counts as valid knowledge, that's where I'm at now after having you know, gone through a PhD, I went to Sophia Center after that and got my master's degree in the, um, it was called cultural astronomy and astrology because I wanted to have a master's degree that had the word astrology in the subject title, right? <laughs> um, and I studied legitimacy in early 20th century Germany, basically the lost chapter of what I couldn't do at Berkeley because I wasn't in an anthropology program. I was in the German department, which was about literature. So they didn't care about whether astrology was true or not. They just cared about its cultural relevance, which was actually a sort of neat workaround to the mm-hmm. question. But, um, you know, after all of this education. I mean, like I said, I have everything in the ninth, right? So (laughs) until I was about 32 to finish. And then I was like, why do we even care about whether or not someone at a university says this is legitimate? How do they actually understand their own legitimacy? And why is that not questionable? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, why don't people question that? And given that now most universities are being run like businesses. Yeah it's less and less that even the way that they're doing science at this point and who's funding that and what they're allowing to come through and what they're preventing from coming out. It's like, guys, you know, maybe we actually need to pivot a little bit. And, you know, I'm not sure if your listeners know about the history of Kepler College, but there were a few, a handful of politicians in the Washington state legislature that stopped it from its path to accreditation. And it's people who didn't know what they were doing, basically saying you can't, ask questions, right? And so it's like, well, maybe we'll just ask them anyway and we just don't care about whether or not you give us a stamp of approval, you know? Well, and that seems to be where where we're at or where we have been, you know, because it's like, it still entices, you still are attracted to it, you still want to study it and nothing's going to stop that. Um, And so it does bring, I I love the question of legitimacy, not about astrology per se, but about uh, the people that are teaching or not just teaching, but, you know, the hierarchical structures of, yeah. of academia, because at the end of the day, like my question is, is, you know, 
the control factor and who's trying to control what and why. And especially like the Kepler example that you just stated, um, where, you know, legislation is like, uh, stopping something for whatever reason. And we know that a lot of our lawmakers, um, especially on the more conservative side are very steeply are very steeped in religion. Um, and, and, you know, those type of world based worldviews. Um, and, but why, I mean, what, 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 why would we want to control something like that? Like, what's the ultimate goal? Like, what are we keeping people from by not allowing, you know? Well, I think I've always, you know, in my ponderings about this question, I flipped it on its head because, you know, I'm going to pivot for a minute, take a slight detour, but it's going to come back. You hear a lot of times when people are just beginning to learn astrological rules that they'll go to their family and they'll say, well, the newspaper horoscopes aren't real astrology, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this becomes a mantra of like, well, that's not real astrology. I'm doing real astrology. We even have a book called Real Astrology by a horary astrologer, which is a little gutsy to say that his own version is the only one. But (laughs) but then when you look at it from an anthropological standpoint, newspaper horoscopes exist, right? So I was sitting around in England, I go every year um, to the Sophia Center, and I was like talking with Nick Campion and I said, well, you know, but newspaper horoscopes aren't real astrology. And he's like, but they exist. So they are real. The question is, what's their purpose, right? So I'm thinking, what's their purpose? What's their purpose? And I'm imagining actually more like a, a field of plants and there's a cow starting to eat some of them. So they send out this bitter enzyme to the plants around it so that the cow starts to get this nasty flavor in its mouth and says, ooh, whoa, I don't want to keep eating in this field. Let me go somewhere else. That bitter flavor, that's newspaper astrology. That's keeping away the people that are not actually going to have the calling for this practice, right? Because it is a powerful thing. If every citizen knew how to do their chart, whoa, I don't know if I actually want to be in that world. You know what I mean? There's a reason why. I mean, I'm not saying about gatekeeping, but some people have a vocation to be astrologers and other people don't. And it's not something, it is a part of our cultural heritage to know about how the sky works. Yes, but it's not necessarily something for everyone to be an astrologer. And so, you know, some of it's being on the outside of legitimacy or staying on the outside of legitimacy, I think is part of its own protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. If you imagine astrology as a sentient being, it doesn't want to be legitimized. It doesn't want you to have to take a bar exam to practice it. It doesn't care about certification. It doesn't care about being in a university and it doesn't care about modern Western concepts of knowledge production. It's something totally different. It's not science. It's not religion. And as Patrick Curry says, it's itself. Um, But, you know, it's it's one of those things where I think it's protecting itself from... Mm -hmm being co-opted by um, people who want to control it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, and that's a, it's a valid point of like, you know, imagine if everyone could do their charts, but we don't want them to because not everyone can be, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a profession right now, but not everyone's meant to be a doctor. Not everyone's meant to be this. Not everybody's mind works in that particular way. And so uh, it is interesting when we bring something that seems so enticing um, and so relevant for so many people. Cause I mean, if you open the paper, everyone's going to have a sign. Everyone's going to be able to read something that is 
you know, goes with them. But then being able to separate that from, you know, the larger sphere and the power that is there. And of course, here we are in the space and time now um, that is, you know, bending the lines and fusing things even further. And, and then it brings to this question of legitimacy, legitimacy because if it's not uh, structured in any type of way as what we're talking about here, then at that point, then we don't know how to separate, you know, the, you know, the people, I don't want to say that should be doing it, but there are people that can do it and expand it further. And then there's others that maybe it's, it needs more structure in order to get there. Or I don't know. (laughs) You get that in every group of people though, right? Like even with, for, I mean, I'm thinking a lot about California because I have family in California and I'm thinking about firefighters, right? Some will Mm -hmm. fight the fire better than others. Does that mean that so-and-so can't be one? I mean, you train, you practice, you execute. Um, Charlatans will always exist in every sphere, you know, in every single one. And, you know, things like a bar exam are trying to keep out the riffraff or the bad ones or something like that, except, come on, we all know there are people who pass it and who practice who are awful and their colleagues will probably tell you under hushed breath, don't see that guy for your accident auto insurance claims, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a, that's why they have that reputation, you know? That's why we have malpractice lawsuits and insurance against it. It's like, that stuff exists no matter what you do and no matter how hard you try to keep the gates closed to people who don't, necessarily quote-unquote qualify. Um, I love my colleague Kenneth Miller saying, you know, people will find the astrologer that they need when they need it. And so if you know that someone's going to a type of astrologer that you don't really make a lot of purchase in, you know, well, maybe those two people have to have that conversation and it's not about you policing who gets to be an astrologer, you know? And then people will begin in some way and maybe have, you know, a lack of insight in a certain area of practice and then grow into deeper insight later. And it's not up to any of us to really actually kind of police that. It's, I think we can all work and do our best to be the best we can be and encourage each other to do that too. But, um, you know, there's many different kinds of astrology. And I think, you know, to say mine is more valid than yours, it's like, well, what kinds of conversations are we both trying to have? Because I might be looking at something more strategically and event-based and you might be looking at people's healing. Mm -hmm. And those two conversations aren't the same. But they're both ways in which astrology can help people, you know, so... Well, and it speaks to the fact that astrology is essentially, you know, a creative abstract form that works within, you know, certain structures and, you know, principles to work off of. And so it it is very much an art in, in many ways. And so it's hard to put it in a box sometimes, but there's also certain things that you know, through testing and time can be put in a box to teach. And I mean, that's how astrology gets shared now um, is, you know, hopefully through channels of mentorship and, you know, because there's fabulous resources out there if you're getting into astrology or furthering your knowledge there. Um, But we also have the the interwebs (laughs) that are influencing uh, a lot there too. And so, I mean, how, what do you think about just the knowledge that's online and how that uh, affects the legitimacy of astrology as well? I think the fact that it's resurging in popularity is amazing for it. And over time, it's like polishing a stone. Everything starts out rough and then it gets better. We had the similar kind of thing with different, slightly different technology in the publishing explosion of the 70s. Do we need 28 books about the planetoid or the asteroid Chiron? No, actually we don't. But women in their 50s did, so publishers made it happen. 
mm-hmm. right? Does it actually mean that Chiron's that important? No. It just means that there's a market for that, right? So we always have to be looking back at it. I actually was going to write a, a thing called, um, you know, Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital, mm-hmm. the book about political economy in Eastern, or sorry, Western Europe. I was going to write one called Dastro Capital, <laughs> which was about the effect of capitalism on astrology, because mm-hmm. that is really ultimately what we're looking at when we see these kinds of things like, oh, if my, like Society6, it's this website where you can kind of print on demand art on different objects, sends out a horoscope newsletter every month. And I'm like, why? And they yeah. just basically put out like, oh, a Scorpio pillow and a Scorpio widget this and a Scorpio widget that. And it's kind of like, okay, cool. So you want to sell 12 different things using astrology. Neat, right? Mm-hmm. But what does that actually, how does that circle back to practicing what some people call real astrology, right? It, well, it means that someone is going to get snagged and say, oh, Scorpio, yeah. What is that? Let me, let me look around a bit. And then, you know, if they're called to the vocation, they're going to get past the bitter enzymes, yeah. right? They're going to actually get to the nutrient and they're going to figure out what their path is. I've seen it time and again where someone gets hooked in this, you know, the sort of like, I don't know, the fashion of it or the, the vogue, the in vogue, you know, mm-hmm. conversations happening on Astro Twitter, but then they get kind of like deeper into it and then suddenly they become conference speakers and then they publish articles in the Mountain Astrologer and it becomes this thing where like they, that kind of launches them into it. So if anything, I think, you know, what we might see is like, oh, I can't believe this stuff. It's like they're promoting really bad astrology. There's no such thing as bad press, right? Like yeah. things can lead certain people astray. And of course, like, you know, if we see someone really screwing up, we want to, as a community, respond to that. But those are really few and far between, honestly. And I think there's actually, it's kind of funny on Astro Twitter. There's the sort of self-policing that the community's doing to itself anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like watching it going like, oh, wow, okay. So you see these little clicks forming and sort of responding to each other. And anybody observing is going to notice that and they're going to gravitate towards one side of the conversation mm-hmm. or the other and continue their study, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, like the whole, the, the, the uh, you know, the business capitalistic side of it too, because that's really growing right now. You know, we're having, uh, you know, <laughs> Fortune 500 companies that are creating uh, astrology apps that are right. reaching, you know, you know, uh, valuations of a billion dollars. And so, and it's interesting, you know, because you brought up earlier about uh, the time of the, of the Reformation and how, you know, there, the powers that be were controlling, you know, <laughs> what was going on there in, in the future of uh, how astrology was viewed. And really, I mean, the last time we had Saturn and Pluto connect in Capricorn was when the Reformation basically kicked off in many ways. Yeah. And so, I mean, uh, there are some parallels to, you know, the underlying, uh, you know, energies that are at play, but it's just interesting to see how that's going to pan out and where astrology's legitimacy will be taken past that point too. Now that it's part of an app, it's on everyone's phone. Uh, It's taking it from a different level of just opening up the paper before and seeing your sun sign horoscope. It's Um, true. I mean, basically, you know, if we're talking about astrology and academics um, or academia as an institution, now with the rise of things like Zoom meeting or GoToMeeting, we can have a school of one, you know? I mean, I've actually started teaching astrology online to a handful of students. And this next year, I'm opening up my course offerings to host other astrologers teaching through my platform because I want to enjoy the classes Mm -hmm. that I don't see being taught anywhere else. And so 
you know, and, and to me, I see that more as an extension of the mentorship principle where it's like, you know, you and I are having a fireside chat about astrology. And then I say, well, you know, my friend Laura is talking about the great books in astrology and you go introduce me to her. And so I say, here she is and she comes on. Right. So it's like the need to go to a place like an astrology school Mm -hmm. is obliterated with the democratization of this kind of technology where we can host classes basically in, in our own little playpens. Um, but that turns every astrologer into an astrology school. Yeah. Also, right? So, but I think that that's actually amazing because we have this ability to mentor people directly without necessarily like being worried about, you know, this, this officialness, you know? I mean, some people are obsessed with needing to have the credential and I get that, but I also question it because it's like, well, who are you trying to impress with that? They're not going to believe you anyway. Even if you say, oh, I have a master's degree in astrology, there's kind of a curt nod and a sort of, okay, well, I still don't get it. And then like conversation moves on, you know, and maybe over time in 70 years, if we keep doing this, it'll change. But, you know, right now in terms of, and then, and the other thing about that is too, like, you know, like, Sophia Center, right? It's amazing to read Babylonian things um, in translation and get a sense of the history of astrology in the 20th century and all of these practices. However, you don't learn how to be a better astrologer. You mm-hmm. learn how to study it like you're a kind of dissecting an animal, right? And it's not the same. And so I feel like there's an element of the mystery of being a good astrologer that is transmitted from practitioner to student that has an oral element that, or a private element that doesn't happen in a classroom in the same way. So, yeah. Well, and it's almost like you got to wonder if, if astrology in some way is regulating itself for that exact purpose, you know, because it's like for, you know, typically (laughs) these kind of underground or more mystical based disciplines, there is an initiation process that goes on and then there's a mentorship and there's a relationship that gets, uh, you know, developed and nurtured through, like you said, that one-on-one experience where uh, it might just not fit within this larger context of something that ultimately has a power umbrella over it that has its own agenda uh, in the long run. Um, So maybe that's, a good thing that, that you know, yeah. that there's always been this barrier uh, to getting it um, regulated in a way uh, for the masses. Because even if you look back in time, like you were saying earlier, there was, there's still that separation where it just was not accessible uh, in that way to everyone. Right. It's a definite vocation, right? I mean, when we think of a calling or a vocation, definitely fits yeah. um, what we do as astrologers because... You know, I've even had people begin learn it, begin to learn it, and then kind of stop. And and it's just not for them, right? So they kind of learn about their chart and get a lot of personal insight and some growth out of it. But it's not really for them to keep going and try to do that for other people. Yeah. And that's where I think also, like you're saying before, you know, we're not all meant to be doctors or lawyers or, you know, um, woodworkers. It's like, yeah, no, like I, I can make a table, but do I want to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> practice that well enough to make a beautiful one? No, I'd like someone else who does that and and that's their passion to do it for me because I mean, everybody needs a table and everybody needs the healing that astrology can provide, but we don't all need to do it for ourselves. Yeah. Right. We can definitely differentiate, but I think that I guess like to change the word academia to education, astrological education is improving with the democratization of our technology to communicate with one another because 
the right people will find who they need to mentor with. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't need to be sort of behind some kind of institutional wall, even though you might think, well, standards of excellence and yada, yada. And it's like, well, you know what? At the end of the day, the people who come together to create a department, there's departmental politics. Yeah. We're going to hire this person and not that person. And I'm not talking just about astrology and not trying to disparage anyone. I mean, I saw this happen in my own department at Berkeley when we had a job opening and the process of trying to fill that job opening with another person who had a PhD in German who was going to become a full professor in our department was so political and high school cliquish. It was like, it just demystified everything. It's like, oh, this is just, you know... Here we have, you know, 12 tenured professors who have to work now permanently with whoever they bring on who has tenure and you can't get rid of them unless you sort of find a way to leave or yeah. get them to leave, right? So it's like, then it becomes this thing of, do we really want to see this person's face every day? And that's totally different than what they know about German culture, yeah. right? And so it's like, we can't get away from that human element. And so because now we have this, you know, ability to talk to each other, you can decide for yourself as a consumer who you want to actually trust with your astrological education based off of how you see them perform in the social sphere and what their reputation is, how many books they've written. You know, they're very accessible um, typically. So I don't know. I really like that about it because I think that that's what's going to make better astrologers is developing a solid relationship with your teacher, whoever it is and wherever they are, you know, mm. and not getting to put a bunch of letters behind your name, you know. That's such an interesting point uh, with the whole, the social dynamic of it and even choosing, you know, the tenured professor there. And that is an important thing. We want to make sure that when we're, uh, especially when we're learning something that is, is rather personal, you know, because obviously the, most people, when they're going to dr- dive in and learn astrology, the first thing they're going to tackle is their own chart, which can bring up, you know, <laughs> things that are of a very personal nature. And of course, you're going to maybe want to go with that uh, into that experience with someone that you connect with, um, you know, you vibe with socially and more right. casually, um, and and offers maybe a, almost a, a comfort where there can be a level of um, with a- academic study. You know, uh, the person there, there's a different type of pedestal it seems than yeah. than the mentorship. There's, it's a closer connection versus this. I don't know. I mean. I yeah, dropped I mean, if out you of college. Any of the certification <laughs> programs, every single certification program in astrology right now will expose you to certain practitioners and prevent you from seeing other ones that those people don't want to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just a human culture thing. It's a way we work in groups of people. So, you know, one thing that I've done isn't um, well, it's more like in the constant travel that I go under, like I I'm in England, I'm aware of groups, you know, I'm obviously in the Northwest, so I know Kepler quite well. I was on their board for a minute. Um, I know about the school in Ohio. And so there's all these different places where we can try to get a certification. And you notice as you start to realize like who's talking to who, who doesn't talk to who anymore because of whatever drama happened in 1980, God knows when, (laughs) right? And so it's like, then you start to realize like, you know, even in England, there's three major places you can go to get certified, or, you know, credentialed in some form and not counting individual astrologers, right? And it's like, if you start to pay attention to the stories of, well, why are there three? You know, why didn't they get to... It's a small island, right? Like, why didn't they get together and just have like one main one? Um, And you start to hear these stories about how people are with each other and you're like, oh, well, why don't... As an outsider American, I can be like, well, I'll just take a class from this one and this one and this one and just see what's up, you know, and find my vibe. But you realize like, there's really good people working in all of them, you know, but they're not working together because they maybe actually socially don't fit together. So, 
you know, at the end of the day, it really is, it does come down to like, who do you want to work with? And now we have the capacity to hopefully work with those people individually without having to worry about like, oh, I have this distinction. Because I mean, all you're really doing when you say that is I can do astrology as well as this group says I can. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you're any better or worse than someone else who may or may not have that. That platform. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting. Um, Well, you know, so... (laughs) Is there ever room for the two to come together? Do you think astrology and, and, you know, academic education or higher learning will ever, you know, in the future be able to meet? Uh, And I mean, do we even want them to? Because it seems like we're going against that to some extent. I personally don't think it's necessary, Mm -hmm. um, but I can see the desire for wanting to be legitimized. I think that in general, the university systems are all in crisis and need to be rethought. Um, I mean, even interdisciplinary programs that arose in the 60s as a response to the um, silos of what a university was doing, right? They, they sprouted up all of these things like Evergreen State College, which called themselves universities without walls, right? So you have this idea of like cross-disciplinary study, interdisciplinary study works to some extent, but each one of those programs is still only taught in English. So you completely lose this idea of multilingual education which relies on having a French department, a German department, a Spanish department, which is itself a 19th century nationalist project that you can't do away with because departments that have become the languages department lose amount of self-determination and they get, I don't want to say watered down, but it is a kind of deflation of the power that's possible when someone's a subject matter expert in, say, the language of German. That language has a certain nationalist um, territory. French has a nationalist territory. Portuguese has a nationalist territory. You have to kind of know about those places on earth and the cultures that are there. And you can't be an expert in the whole world in that way, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, higher education in general is facing its own crisis. And so for the practice of astrology, given that we're on the outside of it anyway... I think that what we can do is continue to refine how we meet in groups given our current technological situation. I'm always entertained by my colleagues who criticize how our conferences are run because they're like, isn't there a better way to do it than in these antiseptic hotels with <laughs> you know, uh, the, the fluorescent lighting? And I'm like, yeah, there must be a better way, right? But the best things that I've ever gone to have actually been more private, gatherings of maybe 18 astrologers talking with each other um, with maybe three or four astrologers at the helm Mm -hmm. in some geographically interesting place that has an alignment visible in the night sky, right? Or, or, you know, I don't know, smaller gatherings of people. And I get the large gatherings are needed as well. But I think that that kind of circulation is more important for our field to come forward. And also, you know, having articles published, books published, things of this nature, um, are more important for this than um, necessarily trying to become part of a university system yeah. or even or even buying into being accredited by anyone. You know, I don't know if that's necessary to be a good astrologer either. Yeah. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like you were saying earlier, you know, where who is that person? <laughs> Who's that? It's like, oh, you're accredited. You know, we we have stamped this approval that you are in this program that will give you what you need. You know, it's- right now, I mean, if we did a thought experiment and stopped our tracks right now and thought, okay, well, who in our community is is approved enough as an expert to mm-hmm. decide 
who gets to have a credential or not, yeah. right? And so then we're going to come up with a list, which is probably a popularity contest. Yep. <laughs> and then they become the people that decide who gets to get in and who gets to stay out. And is that necessary? As long as you can have an application of the rules of astrology and a productive conversation with someone about what needs to happen next, or you know, maybe you're talking to them about a more diagnostic personality reading, or you're talking to them about what's going to happen in five years... If that conversation can happen between those two people, one of them doesn't need their peers to approve of that person's skill. You know what I yeah. mean? So that whole entire question of legitimizing or legitimacy itself. Yeah, I mean, of course it's nice to have your peers validate your skill set, right? But I think um, the desire for this is is misplaced and also buys into a whole host of other yeah. <laughs> things. Just, <laughs> well... It's just a very old system that has been at play for a very long time and has been elite in many ways because, you know, it, it, higher education has not always been accessible to everyone either. Um, so it, it's always kind of held this higher bar, or this upper echelon that, you know, only certain people can get to <laughs> um, and you have to spend a lot of money on, you know, in this yeah. day and age to even get there. Um, and so, I mean, that begs the question, since you're so involved in, you know, and have been in this world, I mean, where do you see uh, the future of, of higher education going? Like, sans, uh, you know, astrology. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so out of it at this point. I really haven't been participating in the American scene since 2012 when I graduated with my PhD. But I do remember very clearly in 2008 um, that... I saw colleagues of mine who were not necessarily working very hard or at least not as hard as I felt like I was working graduate with the same exact credential I was about mm. to get. And I realized at that moment that getting a PhD was an exercise in obedience and had nothing to do with how smart I might be or how smart they were. It was literally show up, write something, don't suck, <laughs> get yeah. other people to agree it doesn't suck and get out. And so... Yeah, you know, you can spin a lot of tales about, oh, but it's a da -na -na, you know, and at the end of the day, honestly, what I saw was like, it's a matter of endurance. And there's a lot of mental health struggles to stick with that kind of hazing that takes place when they say you have to write a document exactly like this and it needs to be exactly like that. Um, and you're basically being jumped into a club, you know, <laughs> and I think people overlook that when you get to say, well, I'm Dr. So and so. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, where did you get your degree? What was your department like? What did they actually have you do for that? You know, and sometimes people get through it without actually having been doing the same caliber of work as someone else. So it doesn't really tell you anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it says one thing. It says you're obedient. That's it. Yeah. Everything else is totally different, right? Like that's, I mean, it sounds so cynical, but it is actually, <laughs> I want to demystify it because I think that a lot of people go, oh, Dr. Z, do, do, do. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just like you. Please call me Jen. It's fine, right? Like there's no need to uh, put anyone on a pedestal about it. Really, it was actually kind of a torturous thing, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't make me feel like I'm better than anyone, right? And so sometimes people use it that way where they get that title and suddenly they, they want to like wield it over others like mm -hmm. some kind of weapon. And I hate it when that happens because that's when I actually like break out the obedience story. I'm like, yeah, you know, getting a PhD is more like getting a degree in obedience than anything else. And it's really true, right? Yeah. So um, I just want that to like continue to seep down into people's consciousness. You know, yeah, if you need it for whatever reason, I wanted it to validate myself, you know, and then 
midway, I almost quit because I was like, well, I don't need an exercise in obedience. But I was so close to the end, I finished it anyway. But that I really got demystified about it because it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's really all about adhering to a certain code of behavior. Yeah. And that code of behavior is the academic code, right? And, and that doesn't mean that that way of knowing is more important or more valid than another way of knowing, which is an astrological way of knowing that isn't validated by the, the academy, right? So it's like, well, now I'm in, in command of both. So what? What do we do with that, right? Yeah. Well, it's a unique position that you are in to be able to see it from, you know, and that's, that's the gift that you get to bring to astrology to be able to have these two viewpoints, um, <laughs> you know, of how it works. So, well, you know, I found it fascinating to talk about this. I don't know where it's going to go. <laughs> I think it is fine where it's at, I guess, at this particular point in time, but there is definitely hierarchical, hierarchical structures that are changing for yeah. both astrology uh, and the uh, higher education um, in, yeah. in the way the world's going now. So, yeah, I mean, I think as a community, what we can do is exercise respect for each other, mm-hmm. do the best we can, help each other get better, um, and continue to innovate how we meet and how we publish and how we talk about what we do, regardless of whether society at large takes us seriously. Really, you know, it's it's a lovely thing to have our community and to be able to be where we are in it right now, given that we can you know, use Zoom and talk from a thousand miles away, you know, and there's so many gifts that I think we have. It's about mobilizing those and trying to, um, yeah, I guess, help each other stay sharp. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's going to be so many opportunities to do so, you know, Zoom, like uh, I have my uh, partner, he works, um, he works in higher education uh, <laughs> for a, a company that is changing its, its route. Um, uh, this longer story, but you know, it's all run by, it's all run by zoom. This is all taking on a whole new, it's take and the, the, uh, educational, uh, facility itself is leaning towards, um, you know, vocational training and, and getting on board with, you know, companies that need a specific type of training rather than this, like go through this four year program to this program. And it just, it's just not where we're at anymore. Right. Um, and so we need to be more flexible with the educational prog- uh, process, no matter what it is that we're actually learning. Sure. And that's one reason why um, I've invited some of my favorite astrologers to come into my little Zoom room mm-hmm. <laughs> to share their insights because I'll have conversations, for example, with Wonder Bright about what does it mean, like what does it mean when Leo is on the house or on the cusp of a house, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we've been delineating charts together and she has this whole thing that she'd love to share about Leo on the house cusp and what that means for the seventh house or the eighth house or the ninth house, you name it. And I'm like, whoa, that's a class. Like, come over here and talk to my people about this, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Laura Machete's talking about astrology and ecology. And I'm like, hey, can you come over here and talk to my people about this? It's amazing, right? And so it's that idea of like seeing our own little Zoom rooms as places where we can host these awesome conversations and have that transmission happen without the onus of like, enroll in school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's more like, hey, Tuesday night at mine, right? Come on yeah. over. And then, you know, what do you do in exchange for the knowledge? You pay some change, right? You pay a chunk of change. And that becomes how we share and support each other in the transmission. Yeah. And it's essentially my, my whole, uh, you know, MO for doing this podcast to begin with is to be yeah. able to see these, you know, talk with different people that are doing different things that have, you know, uh, 
fabulous ways of looking at the world through their own particular lens, but we're all meeting within the same language. And I find that fascinating. Um, And every new person I meet, every new astrologer is just, I don't know. It's just, I love seeing people who have minds that work similar to mine, but in a way that is, is, is different enough to open mind further, you know, and that, that's a blessing and, and a gift, uh, especially if you have ninth house planets as yeah. we both do. <laughs> Never stop learning. Totally. Um, yeah. And I think ultimately too, embracing the interdisciplinarity of astrology, we, we are the coolest people, I think, because everybody who becomes an astrologer is coming from such a different place with it. And figuring out what makes them tick and how this became their calling, you know, to me, that's one of my favorite things. Like if people ask, well, what did you do after you left your PhD? You know, like I graduated in 2012 and then I spent seven years traveling the world and hanging out with astrologers and talking to them, you know, basically like that's what I did. I was doing the distance MA at Sophia Center, but I was also living in Cape Town, you know, hanging out with Cape Town astrologers and living in England, hanging out with English astrologers. So, you know, I think, um, having these conversations and just expanding our minds to realize like, oh, wow. So like there's fertility astrology and then there's like Mm -hmm. looking at dreams in astrology and there's all these ways in which we can really use astrology as a common language to study the world around us too. Um, So, I mean, it's never ending. Ah, And that's the best part, right? That is the best part. That's like, and that's how you know when you're an astrologer because that... (laughs) That spark of, of inspiration and interest and curiosity, it just does not die. And, and, it, and, and it becomes obsessive. It, it's <laughs> yeah. um, but it's life. It's life. And it brings a little skip in my step every day. So <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. Well, all right, Jen. Well, thank you for sharing this fabulous information about your own journey and just in some of the historical, you know, fake news that was involved within this too, you know, (laughs) how we get to this lack of legitimacy um, when clearly, uh, you know, it's, it's all lining up scientifically for me. Uh, But (laughs) all right. So now I know you have things going on. You mentioned a class. So tell people where they can find you uh, and and what you have on offer. Okay. Um, My website is celestialspark.com because it's also jensart.com, but that's hard to spell. So celestialspark.com gets you there. Um, I will be hosting a series of classes next year with various astrologers, including my own classes. Um, I'm going to be teaching about elemental voids in the chart and what that means when you lack planetary placements in a certain element. Um, zodiacal releasing, annual perfections, kind of more advanced techniques. And every fall I offer an intro class that's an intensive that really is very intense in 14 weeks, basically zero to 60. Um, And all year long, uh, Laura Machete is going to be doing an astrology and ecology series that's starting in December. So I'm really excited to have this pivot and kind of turn into a wider conversation than just classes that I do on my own. Um, Wonder will be teaching. Becca Tarnas is going to be teaching. So it's going to be something to look out for. And all that will be available on celestialspark.com. All right. Perfect. So Celestial Spark. Well, we were just talking about that, the Celestial Spark. So that is where you can find Jen and her educational offerings. And do you do some sort of uh, talismanic work as well? Um, I saw... Yeah. So I began... Once I moved to Seattle in 2014, I started working with um, some magical herbalists. And so I've gotten into alchemy and study alchemy with Robert Allen Bartlett in Marysville, Washington. So 
I make talismanic oils and uh, do planetary magic as well. Yes, because I saw that on your on, on over at the Celestial Spark. I saw yeah. <laughs> I saw a finger and I saw <laughs> yeah. and I saw some some oil, and I'm like, what is going on here? I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so talismanic oils, and um, it, actually, this month in the I Am Infinity Astrology Magazine, mm-hmm. I have an article about plant magic and talismanic oils in the astrological context. Oh, perfect. All right. So there's plenty of stuff out there if you want to engage with Jen and her uh, fantastic mind that we see uh, that is helping structure a new... See, I love it because you know, you're coming from this space and now you're creating this whole new thing that's bringing community together that has you know, the, the foresight of, of both, how both systems work. And so really that's, uh, that, that's the beauty of uh, fusion, I guess, of, of different influences coming together. So, yeah. all right. Well, you know, in case you didn't ca- catch that, which, uh, you know, Celestial Spark, that's easy to remember, uh, but I always do a blog post for each guest as well. So I'll definitely be sharing Jen's information there too, uh, so that you have an easy connect to just go see what she is up to. And so you can find that over at energeticprinciples.com. Uh, and then also, of course, on social media at Energetic Principles at either you know Instagram or Facebook. You, would you have any social uh, media platforms mm-hmm. that are... Yeah. What's yeah, your, what's I'm your on tag? Facebook is Jen Zart, I think. And then Twitter and Instagram, my handle is Zartillery. Yeah. Zartillery. Yeah, <laughs> I like so that. We'll be- I have a Mars Midheaven conjunction, so. No, well, (laughs) that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Well, she's always sharing. You are a sharer, um, but they're always making me laugh or like, you know, it's just, it's very entertaining. And I've definitely shared a couple of the things that you put out there before. Uh, So spread that word. Um, uh, Now, of course, if you would like to support this podcast in particular, you can go over to Patreon, uh, patreon.com backslash energetic principles to get early listen access. And also uh, my show notes for the report, um, the forecast for each week. Uh, And, you know, it is good to spread the word because sharing is caring and letting people know about the, the history of astrology and, you know, and, and how that's worked with academia and the legitimacy issue that is, is, you know, these, it's good to educate yourself on these matters. So spread the podcast, share with a friend, leave a review, hopefully a nice one, uh, wherever it is you listen to it, because this will help uh, myself and Jen be seen further um, and get the word out there. So, all right, Jen, well, your pleasure to speak to. I'm so glad you were uh, able to join me on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was wonderful. Absolutely. So, all right. And thank you for tuning in. And as always, may the stars be with you.